the need for balance in our life is pretty obvious. Um, shock jock radio may be good for the ratings and getting a rise out of people, but it's not a lifestyle that any of us could live for very long, uh, staking out one polar end of the spectrum of society in anything. It's just an imbalanced way of living. And we know for each one of us has, over the course of our lives, struggled or have somehow found a way to balance our um, internal life and the needs for nurturing that with our external and engaged activity. We've also had to find a way to balance our emotional um, response or reactivity to the events of life with our more rational, logical perspective on the same situation. We also need to balance our proactive, take care of things before they happen planning with an inactive, wait till it happens and choose an appropriate response. And we see that there's this spectrum of possibilities in, in all areas of our life. And those of us who find a way to navigate a middle path maybe have a wider range of options and maybe less uh, imbalanced and just more uh, respond more appropriately to the well incessant demands of our life the Buddha's teachings were also called the middle path but the middle path in his day was the middle between sensuous indulgence and ascetic deprivation. Well, that was the polar extremes in the time of the Buddha, and while that may also be possible for us these days, we see that there's just many areas of life in which we need to bring an understanding of balance. You know, when a tightrope walker walks on this high wire, it's a balancing act. But not only are they trying to balance themselves from falling on to one side or the other, they carry this heavy, large pole, which initially might seem like well, an, uh, a little extra burden. Why not dump that and just walk the wire? But actually, it's this heavy pole which makes it possible for them to stay balanced or to correct a slight imbalance, to correct it very easily. Because that pole is so heavy, when they start to 
tilt or lean to the left, all they have to do is move that pole just a fraction of an inch to the right and the center of gravity is brought and they're brought upright. Or if they lean too far to the right, they're about to fall to the right, they move the pole just a fraction to the left and they're brought into balance. Sometimes a practice of awareness or spiritual practice or the whatever it is we do in life to uh, bring balance in our life. Sometimes it feels like a lot to carry around, a lot to impose on our life, a lot to, uh, to do and to bring into consideration in our life. But it's that pole, it's that heavy pole, the pole of gravitas in our life. So that we're not just living superficially on the winds of circumstance, just blowing here and there. But we've got some gravity in our life, something that can bring us into balance when the winds of circumstance are blowing. Tonight I want to speak about one, one uh, understanding of this path of balance that the Buddha taught and spoke about. And traditionally, the topic I'm speaking about tonight is called the seven factors of awakening. Well, it's usually reserved for more mature practice or later in the retreat or those who are, have the experience of the seven factors of awakening. But I was looking at it and I was saying, you know, we all need this understanding at the very beginning of our practice so that we understand that what we're doing here is monitoring our life, our mind, our experience of the present moment and trying to find a balanced relationship to it. So that we're not blown out, we're not overwhelmed, but we're responsive rather than reactive. So I want to speak about these seven qualities of mind or these seven attributes of the mind as a way of helping us all frame the work that we're doing here, both as skillful attitudes to bring to practice, but also to begin to lay out the path of practice and the goal of practice. What is the goal and what are the benefits of practice uh, as, as we develop these qualities of mind. The interesting thing about these seven factors is there are three energizing factors and there are three tranquilizing factors that are brought into balance by the seventh factor, which is awareness. So the three energizing factors have their role of energizing the mind. And they are effort or energy, investigation or looking closely, and joy. These are three qualities of mind which tend to arouse energy. If they're in excess, we'll be amped up and flying off the handle and not very grounded. They need to be 
balanced with the three tranquilizing qualities of mind, factors of mind, which are tranquility itself or calmness. The next is called concentration or samadhi, but it really means stability of mind. I'll speak more about this. And the third of the tranquilizing factors is equanimity or non-reactivity of mind. When these are developed in response to maturing energizing factors, then we have an energized, tranquil mind or life. On the other hand, if the energizing is in excess, we're a little bit manic. If the tranquilizing are a little bit in excess, we're kind of couch potato. And, and so our path is one of navigating the unfolding present moment, avoiding the extremes of energy and tranquility. But let's speak about mindfulness first because it is this mindful awareness that keeps the energizing and the tranquilizing factors in balance. It is also the quality of mind that most arouses them in our practice. Okay, we've been practicing mindfulness, some of us for decades, some of us for a few hours today. What is it? Well, we kinda know it's something about being aware or being present, but what is that quality? How does it come about in the mind? I'm sure you had the experience today of, you know, you sit down and you're intending to pay attention and to recognize what is going on moment to moment. And somewhere in that sitting, that half hour or 45 minutes, the mind starts thinking about something that we're not even aware of. And it thinks, hops, skipping and jumping from one topic to the next for a minute or two or five or 20. And during that time, we are completely unaware. We don't know that we're thinking. We don't know what we're thinking about. We don't know that we're even sitting in a hall with other people. We don't know that we're even alive. We are oblivious. And yet, at some point, fortunately, we come out of that train of thought and we realize, oh, here I am sitting on a cushion. And with a quick look back, we can see, often, everything we were thinking about, which at the time of thinking about it, we were unaware. Awareness is not about thinking. It's not about all the plans that you make. It's not about what the mind does quite automatically, whether you're present for it or not. It's this capacity to know what the mind is doing in each moment. And as 
as obvious as it seems, it's not universally present. And so we have to work at it. It is this ability to be present for, well, your life. It seems, and why do we have to practice that? Well, because there are these deeply conditioned habits of mind of planning and worry and remembering this and scheming and strategizing about things that aren't happening, solving problems that don't yet exist. And during that time, we're not really present. And so awareness is recognizing that, coming out of it, and, and being present for this moment. The characteristic of, of mindfulness is called uh, not floating away. Mindfulness sinks into the sinks into the present moment and recognizes it. It doesn't just kind of float along on the stream of consciousness that's often stream of unconsciousness. We could say that mindfulness or awareness is not forgetting that you're present. One time I was doing a retreat, at the time I was first doing a retreat with one of my teachers in Burma, from Burma, but he was in the States. I was still quite new at practice and not very successful. And uh, we were being interviewed every day, individually, and the woman before me was a, a quite experienced meditator, and she was pretty dramatic in her descriptions of what she was aware of. So I would be standing in the hall, you know, 15 feet away while she's in the room giving her report of her practice to Saito Upandita. And one day, I mean, I could overhear what she was saying, even though I wasn't trying to listen. You could hear. One day, she was excitedly telling Saito about remembering her past lives and what she was doing, and she was just excited about how that was just happening. Past lives. Where's the breath? <laughs> so I, I got kind of like, you know, kind of like feeling like I wasn't doing very good. So when I went into uh, my report with Sayadaw a few minutes later after she left bouncing down the hall, I kind of kind of moped in. And, and before I even did my bows and sat down, I said to Upandita, I said, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? <laughs> And he looked at me calmly and said, no, remembering this life. <laughs> it's just remembering to be present for this life. That's all we're trying to do. Can we be here for it? It doesn't have any um, agenda. Awareness doesn't have any agenda to get rid of anything or to make anything happen or to uh, figure anything out or to explain anything or to plan anything, or to remember anything. It doesn't have any agenda. It just observes and knows this is what's going on in this moment. Of course, some of those agendas do attach themselves to our mindfulness, and then that's what's going on to be recognized by awareness itself. But nevertheless, mindfulness is the primary ingredient 
for awakening to life, awakening to our life. It serves as a balancing mm, fulcrum because when any of the other factors are in excess or deficient, awareness notices that. And by merely noticing the mind that's over-energized or over-tranquilized, by merely noticing it, we bring that into balance, or we, we raise what's deficient, or we subdue what is in excess. Or it's not we do it. Mindfulness has that capacity itself to bring things into balance. And so by merely being attentive to any of the other six factors, three energizing and three tranquilizing, awareness brings them into balance. I like to call mindfulness participatory awareness. It's not like we're kind of standing back here watching our life unfold over there as a remote or distant, disconnected scientist. On the other hand, we're not so enmeshed in what's going on in our life that we're just blinded by our emotional re involvement with things but rather we're participating. There's, there's a presence and a, a uh, living with what's going on while simultaneously observing it. So we say that in every moment of awareness there are two elements. There is what's going on and the awareness of it. What's going on can be the breath, a sound, hearing a sound, thinking a thought, planning a future, anything is what is going on. And there is this awareness of it, the knowing of it. If we're not aware of it, we're enmeshed in it. On the other hand, if we're just kind of standing back here thinking about it, we're not really participating in our life. Mindfulness is that, that balanced. If we do the work of having the intention to be aware, the result of being aware will happen. It's not a matter of personal ability or personal uh, accomplishment. It's cause and effect. If you fulfill the causes, the effects will take place. And the causes for mindful awareness is to recognize what is going on. In this moment, if you recognize what's going on, it conditions awareness of the next moment. If you're mindful in one moment, you're more likely to be mindful of the next. But it takes energy. Which is the next of the factors I want to speak about. Energy, we could say, nothing is accomplished without effort. As Ramana Maharshi says, no one succeeds without effort. Peace of mind is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their success to persevering effort. And so in a way we could say that 
right effort or energy is, in this case, to just be persevering, to just show up again and again and again and again for, well, the breath, other sensations and experiences of the body, and whatever's going on in the mind. It is said that the Buddha, in all of his 45 years of teaching the Dharma, pointing to the way things are, and all of his encouragement of kings and queens and royalty and monks and nuns and the whole spectrum of the social classes of his day, it is said that he spoke more about right effort than any other topic. And I think it's because there are so many ways that we can get caught in wrong effort. What I have noticed and what many Western teachers have noticed is that we Westerners who come to Dharma practice, who come to uh, meditation or spiritual practice, are usually very motivated. I mean, it's not easy. It's not always fun. Why do it? Well, we have our own motivations. And they may be noble or they may be pretty ordinary. Nevertheless, we're there. This is good. It also is the key ingredient for making wrong effort. Because our conditioning is, for everything else in our life, if you want it, get it. And you just make the effort, and you strive, and you push, and, you, and you'll get it. You'll succeed, whether it's school, or financial success, or whatever it is you want to pursue. In spiritual practice, it's not like that. If you push and strive, you don't get. You get tight. You get a headache, mostly. But you don't get a balanced mind. And so, while we, are mo while we are highly motivated for our own personal and sometimes noble reasons, often we try too hard. And that's something to be alert to. It's not actually difficult to be mindfully aware. When I tell you to feel the sensations in your right hand, don't. all it takes is a simple turning of your attention to the right hand to feel what's going on there. Not difficult. How much energy does it take to turn the mind to a present moment's experience? Not that much. You don't have to bear down, grit your teeth, scowl your face, clench your fist in order to be aware. It's just the subtlest of intentions and directing of the mind. That's all we have to do. But we have to do it from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. That's what's hard. It's the continuity which is difficult to sustain. And so when we're doing whatever it is we do, right effort is to come back to the simplicity of turning your attention to the present moment's experience and recognizing it. That's all. It's not walking faster, walking slower. It's not standing straight. It's not, it's not anything other than 
working with the mind. Of course, it's difficult because the habits of the mind, the, 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 the nature of the body, it's heavy, it's painful, it's restless, it's sleepy, it's... And so there are just innumerable skillful techniques for working with all the challenges and all the difficulties that we need in order to apply right effort to the situation we find ourselves in. Carlos Castaneda was a great spiritual seeker of our time. Had a great teacher, actually, Don Juan. And Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda something really valuable about right effort that's applicable to our situation here. Carlos writes, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. <laughs> huh, okay. It's where we apply the mind. Our mind has got plenty of energy. It's got so much energy, we've made plans that will never live out. If all that energy had gone into just being present for this moment, we'd be very aware. So, right effort is necessary in every moment. And it requires a lot of balance, a lot of um, intentionality, a lot of skill to navigate balanced effort. Not striving too hard, too tight, too, with too much expectation. And not kind of laying back in a kind of casual way where nothing gets done. It's finding that place in the middle. And the most colorful stories come from our misapplication of right effort. Again, when I was practicing in Burma uh, in the monastery with my teacher Upandita, it was, it was a very demanding schedule. Uh, four hours of sleep, 20 hours of practice a day. And I was committed to it. I was gung-ho and I was there to see what could be done. And um, the schedule is one hour sitting, one hour walking for alternate hours every day, all day. So I was sitting and after an hour got comfortable, I said, well, if an hour is good, an hour and a quarter must be better. Had this wrong idea that sitting was where it was really happening. I worked, got to sit an hour and 15 minutes comfortably, well, reasonably comfortably. Well, if an hour and a quarter is good, an hour and a half must be better. So sat an hour and a half. And then eventually I just kind of worked myself up to two hours, three hours, four. You don't have to do many sittings a day if you do sit in four hours each time. <laughs> but it's not very pleasant either. 
So I was going to Upandita and I was reporting to him every day and I would walk in given this elaborate description of the exquisite nature of excruciating pain. <laughs> you know, just the infinite details of burning and tightness and stabbing and ripping and stretching. It's like, oh my God, it was just like excruciating. But you can learn to endure it and it can be very mindful. Pain is a great object for collecting the mind. You know, and after a couple of weeks of this, Upandita looks at me and he says, um, you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, tell me, I'm ready to receive the truth. <laughs> he says, you sit too long. <laughs> Hello? Uh, we can be so off balance in our efforting, we don't see it. But someone who's navigated the path a little further along, a little, has a little more experience and has already suffered the consequences of that wrong practice, they can tell you. Back off a little bit. Maybe you're making too much effort, too strenuous, or applying your mind wrongly. That's the value of a, of a skillful guide. Someone who's been down the path just one step ahead of you, or kind of parallel track, but a little ahead, who's seen the dangers that lie on the path and have navigated them somehow, or extricated themselves from the dangers, the ditches on the path, and, and can share their understanding with you. And that's all we intend to do in our sharing of the Dharma and pointing of to what is the path and how do we navigate it. It's just to share our experience in that way. So we have the first of the energizing factors is effort, right effort. A second energizing uh, factor of mind is called investigation of the Dharma. This is not about reading Dharma books and investigating what others have commented about the Dharma. There is a time and place for getting inspired and getting familiar with what others have believed the path to be or have discovered the path to be, but in actual practice, the investigation of the Dharma is our ability to be with our own experience deeply enough to actually take in its essence. And not to just superficially skim across the top of things. So we say there are two, two factors that help us do that. The first is the mind, our attention, needs to contact the experience. You need to touch it. You need to taste the experience with your mind. But not only do you need to just touch it, in order to get the full flavor of this moment's experience, you need to touch it and stay there. Not only do we touch or connect with the experience, but we sustain the attention on our experience. And Upandita likes to use the, the image of touching and rubbing the experience. You know, if you just take your finger and you place it just lightly, but you touch the back of your hand, you can feel something. But if you take and you slightly rub your finger around the back of your hand, you have a lot more contact, a lot more texture. You have a lot more knowledge about the back of your hand. Just touching it, you know you're touching it. But by rubbing, 
it, you get more details, you get more knowledge. And same with our mindfulness, touching the present moment's experience. If the mind just touches it and skips on to the next thing, well, yeah, we kind of there, but what can we say about it? Nothing. Because we really didn't get the essence of it. We didn't taste the essence of it. It's like eating without really chewing your food. You just kind of... Well, you get some kind of nourishment, but you don't get the enjoyment of the taste. So investigation of the Dharma is something like that, where we uh, take a sustained interest in what is often a very boring, mundane experience. I mean, how many times do you have to look at the breath or notice the in-breath or out-breath to kind of, to kind of have grokked it? You know, I got it. Okay, I've been there, done that. Okay, what next? Well, there's another breath. Be there for that one. Well, that's boring. Yeah, well, sustain your interest. Investigate it a little more closely. All of us, many of us, today experience sleepiness, right? What do we know about sleepiness? Well, it comes after lunch. <laughs> anything else? Well, it makes me tip over. Yeah, anything else? I don't know, I was too sleepy to notice. Well, it's a common experience. Not only have we been sleepy today, we've been sleepy every day of our life. You'd think we'd be able to write a whole book about the nature of sleepiness. But we can't. Why? Because we haven't really paid attention to it. We haven't really tasted the essence of it. Haven't been able to sustain the interest and investigate the nature of sleepiness in a, a mindful and aware way. And the same goes for hunger and desire and fear and joy and sorrow and grief and loss and everything else. We've all experienced that in life, all those ordinary human experiences, we've all had them. We've all been subjected to them, if you will. And yet, in some ways, the flavor has been kind of insipid and superficial because the awareness was not developed and able to penetrate and taste the essence of that. So we investigate the Dharma. Back in the 1800s, there was a Swiss uh, scientist called Louis Agassiz. And Louis Agassiz was a kind of a pioneer in his day. Up until his time, science was the study of what other people had said science was. And if you wanted to know about anything, you read what other people said about it, and then you knew. But he got curious, and he said, well, I'm going to look for myself. And this was a notable shift in his teaching students, look for yourself. Well, he became famous because living in Switzerland, he studied glaciers. Glaciers. Now, I mean, all you got to do is look at a glacier and you see it's not, it's not going anywhere. It's just sitting there. But because he spent the time and looked carefully and observed over and over again, he came to understand the nature of glaciers in a way that had never been known. So came on a speaking tour to the United States, speaking about glaciers, and everywhere he went, it was just a wild, popular success, and, and Agassiz clubs sprang up all over the country. 
Of course, Harvard University heard about it, invited him to be a professor. Graduate students wanted him as their advisor. And he held a lottery and interviewed each of them. When the initial interview was at an end, Samuel Scudder recounts, and Agassiz asked the student when he or she would like to begin, the answer was now. Whereupon the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he or she was to look at the fish, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. <laughs> Samuel Scudder described the experience as one of his life's most memorable turning points. He writes, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly, I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. <laughs> I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with a will, and I discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction the best lesson he ever had, a legacy of inestimable value which he could not buy and with which he could not part. We have a fish. <laughs> we all are that fish. Take a look. We've lived with this fish. We've lived with this body. We've lived with this mind for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and some of us more years. Have we seen it yet? Do we know really what's going on here? The investigation of the Dharma is to look, to just observe, to just look, to gather data, if you will. The understanding will come later. If you gather enough data, suddenly it'll dawn on you what's going on there. Our task is just to look. This is investigation of the Dhamma. So we have right effort, investigating the Dharma. The third of the uh, energizing factors is joy. Joy, initially in practice, is having interest. 
just being interested, just showing up and being willing to look again at the very ordinary, mundane, and boring experiences of the present moment. Because initially, mindfulness is not very strong, we're not seeing very deeply, and we're all ambitious and we want to get on to the next lesson. And it's the same old lesson over and over and over again. Present moment, what's happening? Okay, next present moment, what's happening? And it might be the same old thing. I'm still bored. Look at boredom. Boredom still happening. Bored, take a look. Boredom still happening. Take another look. What can we learn about the nature of whatever it is that we're... How are we going to sustain that kind of energy without interest? Well, it's kind of a forced interest. Initially, it might be a forced interest, but an amazing thing happens with the development of awareness or mindfulness. The capacity of the mind, the innate capacity of the mind, is to know. It knows sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts. We could say there's only six things you'll ever experience. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts. It's the mind's capacity, ability, to know them. But when the mind is tired and overused and kind of undeveloped and kind of weak, uh, it's kind of a bother to know things very clearly or accurately. But when there's some momentum to the mindfulness and the mind is kind of cleaned up and energized and, and is purified in a way where it's seeing things clearly, the mind gets delighted. Not only does it get delighted, it gets ecstatic. It gets just so enthused with knowing what's happening even if what's happening is painful. It's one of those paradoxical things. When the mind is on fire, knowing what's happening, if what's happening is painful, the mind is just as delighted as if it was pleasant. Because the mind's able to do its work unhindered, unentangled, unencumbered with all of our agendas and all of our fears and all of our self-imposed limitations. When this kind of joy arises in the mind. It sometimes appears as the spiritual goody, you know, ecstasy, bliss, just some of those, well, which in some spiritual traditions are considered the goal of practice. Ecstatic union with the object. Well, in this practice, it's just a natural result of developing the mind. It's a uh, spiritual goody. It's a inevitable it's an inevitable experience for anyone who practices and develops their mind. And it's just a scenic turnout on the path. <laughs> Don't get stuck there. But it is energizing. And it is really, it, it, it brings uh, a lot of confidence to the mind. When that kind of energy arises, you feel confident and clear. The mind is so clear and so bright and so continuous that it seems like your effort is effortless. The mind is just knowing automatically. And that's the quality of a highly energized and joyful mind. It comes. But when you've got this much energy and this much investigation and this much joy, we need the other end of the spectrum. We need some tranquility or we're going to kind of burn out and so the 
three tranquilizing qualities or factors of mind. The first of which is calm, tranquility itself. Just being here on retreat with the routine of the schedule and the silence and the simplicity of our day's activities, just sit and walk, there's a very calming and tranquilizing effect on the body. The body's just not running around, you're not answering the phone, you're not hurrying to the store, you're not going out, you're not talking, it's just it's a very calming effect on the body. Eventually it has and allows a calming effect on the mind. Initially we may think, oh, the mind is really restless, it's really chattering away, it's just going here, it's going there, and it does. But eventually it realizes there's nothing to do here. What's the hurry? I mean, it doesn't take that long to get from one end to the other. Calm down. I mean, it's not like we command ourselves. It's like the mind sees. I've got a half hour to get from here to there. Okay. And the mind comes down, the body comes down. We say, calm mind indicates and conditions calm body and vice versa. Slow the body down, the mind will calm down. When tranquility is deficient, we can feel very agitated, over-energized, or restless. But when it is excessive, when we have too much tranquility, we get the hundred-yard gaze. You know, we're just kind of staring off into the space like a stunned mullet. You know? There's a little too much tranquility. So we want to kind of bring it into balance. The seduction of tranquility is that for most of us, it's what we seek when we undertake meditation or spiritual practice. We want some relief from the stress, from the pace, from the kind of onslaught of stimulation in our life. And when we get a taste of tranquility, where the mind is calm and the body's calm, and we feel just more easily present in our body, on the earth, it's very seductive. We want it. We like it. We soak it up. We try to hang on to it. Of course you cannot. It comes as a result of skillful practice. If we stop being mindfully aware of what's happening, tranquility, it soon leaves. And we're agitated, we're frustrated, we're hanging on to something that we can't have or we can't get or that has left our experience. And so we want to be careful that when we first experience or when we begin to notice a calmness in the mind and a calmness in the body, don't indulge in it. Be mindful of it. Because wholesome qualities or skillful qualities of mind are strengthened by noticing them. Unwholesome and unskillful qualities of mind are weakened by noticing them. So, when aversion arises, being aware of that weakens it. When tranquility, calmness, balance of mind arises, to notice that strengthens it. So make that then the object of your meditation. That's what you become aware of as a way of bringing it and keeping it 
in balance. But when tranquility arises, an amazing thing happens. The mind becomes very pliable, very adaptable, very straightforward, very light and agile. The mind becomes uh, unencumbered of its personality conditioning, if you will. And it is very adaptable to whatever is happening. The mind can know it. From the most subtle to the most gross, from very pleasant to very unpleasant, from familiar to novel, the mind is just very, well, the term that the neuroscientists of today are using, uh, they refer to the plasticity of the mind. The mind can change, it can adapt, it can do what you've never known it to do before. When it's energized, when it's awake, when it's aware. But calmness alone brings with it another of the tranquilizing qualities of mind. And it's called samadhi. Samadhi is often translated as concentration. It gives a little bit of a wrong flavor, wrong connotations when we say concentrated mind. If we talk about concentrated mind or concentration, most, many of us, I should say, have this idea that we've got to corral the mind, jam it together into this little, little object of the breath. It just hold it there, concentrating the mind on that little object. Well, size of object is not concentration. Size of object is size of object. Concentration or samadhi is really the collectedness of the mind. It's not the size of what the mind is paying attention to. You can be very concentrated, very collected, observing the whole body rather than just some minute sensations of the breath. So be careful not to fall into the misunderstanding, the wrong view that collectedness of mind or samadhi, concentration, is somehow narrowing your view. Sometimes it happens when the mind is collected that the view narrows quite naturally and you're noticing just the minute pixels of sensations in the body. Fine, if that's the way it's happening naturally. But to force the mind into this kind of little narrow box is not concentration. That's not samadhi. That's narrow object. Samadhi comes, or collectedness of mind comes, it's a direct result of continuity of awareness. If you want to be concentrated, if you want the mind to be collected and powerful, it is a result of continuity of awareness. It's not the object of your awareness. It's not how hard you're trying or striving. It's just how continuous you are. And for that, we just need to remember again and again and again. Remember this moment, this moment, this moment, this moment. The more continuous those moments of remembering, the more collected the mind. The more collected the mind, the more magnified the mind is. When the mind looks at something from its collected, concentrated state, it sees a lot more detail. When I hold up my hand like this and ask you, what do you see? You can say quite clearly, oh, I see your hand. And that's not wrong, that's right. But if I say, get a little closer, what do you see? Well, I see 
I see the five, the four fingers and the thumb, and I can see some lines on the hand. That, that's also correct. Couldn't be seen from a further distance, but it's also correct. But I say, come a little closer. And you get really close, and you can see some scars, and you can see some old splinters, and <laughs> you can see a few other things in there, which is possible because you're getting closer to and you're seeing more detail of what's going on there. The initial view wasn't wrong, it just wasn't very concentrated. When the mind is more concentrated and you're closer to your experience, you see more detail. When you see more detail, you know more about what you're looking at. The same thing happens with our mindfulness. The more collected the mind, the more we see in something as simple as the breath. We see more of what's going on there. Sure, we see the breath the moment we first look on first day, first time we ever try meditating, we can see the breath, but we don't see much. After weeks or months of looking at the breath, collecting the mind, you see a lot more detail. You understand much more about the nature of the breath or any other physical or mental experience you look at. So collectedness of mind is the second of the tranquilizing factors, or the stability of mind. The third of the tranquilizing factors is equanimity. Equanimity is the balanced mind. It's the arresting of the mind before it falls into extremes. It's not being distant from experience. It's not being reactive to experience. It's being in touch with experience and not letting the mind fall into a reaction or a distancing from it, but just being with it as it is. This is equanimity. It is a uh, smoothing, you'd say, of the mind. It's a smoothing out of the mind. Initially, we start developing equanimity by watching our reactivity, noticing when we're getting pushed or pulled by our experience and exercising some restraint, not acting it out, exercising some restraint, begins to awaken equanimity in the mind. There's equanimous effort, not trying too hard, not trying too little. There's uh, affective equanimity, where we're not getting caught in aversion or desire, but we're staying connected with the object. There's cognitive equanimity, where we, we have a balanced understanding about what we're looking at, what we're viewing. We might say that the equanimity or the development of maturing equanimity is the most mm, subtle and the most rewarding of the states of mind that come from uh, awareness practice. It is a result of good practice. We can bring an intention to be balanced, not reactive to our efforts in practice, but mature equanimity comes when practice is developed and the mind sees things clearly and understands them rightly and therefore doesn't fall into reactivity.
So we have these seven qualities of mind, these seven attributes of the mind that we're working with in our practice. Arousing the mind with energy, interest, investigation, calming the mind or tranquilizing the mind with calmness, stability of mind and equanimity, and balancing them all with this preeminent quality or ability of the mind to be mindfully aware or mindful. These are the seven factors of awakening. They're the seven factors of um, making right effort and uh, achieving right understanding in practice. So they're useful tools to remember, or useful guides to remember in, in our practice. And sometimes just you might just take a moment to scan your experience and see, are they present? Is there interest? Is there energy? Is there investigation? Is there a calmness? Is there a stability of mind? Is there some equanimity? And you'll see, oh, if you're way off balance or somewhat off balance, you'll begin to notice, oh, I'm a little too energized, a little too tight, a little too wound up. Turn to the tranquilizing factors and enhance them. Or if you're too chilled out, you're falling asleep, you're getting lethargic, you're getting a little soporific, look to the three energizing factors as a way of bringing it into balance. In time, your monitoring of balance will be on a more ongoing basis, quite automatic. But initially, we need to make some effort at discovering what the nature of the imbalanced mind is and making an effort, an intentional effort, to bring it back into balance. I was reading recently about some studies of what qualifies or what makes a person a genius in their field. And it was really interesting because I thought, oh, meditators need to know this. <laughs> what these uh, scientists did is they studied genius and tried to discover the common elements of geniuses. Is that right? Genii. Geniuses. <laughs> the key factor in all accomplishments of all genius is having a deliberate practice. That's interesting. The primary trait was the ability to develop a deliberate, strenuous, and boring practice routine. I don't think the boring is quite right. I think it's the ability to tolerate boring or tolerate a repetitive practice routine. Well, we're certainly doing that. <laughs> it certainly is deliberate, it certainly is strenuous, and it can be kind of boring. In that, we discover the, the plasticity of the mind. What they found is that by doing that, a genius, or one who has become the, on the path to become a genius, delays the mind's turning a deliberate, intentional skill into an unconscious, habitual habit. Now, what that means is, instead of just casually looking at something, 
It takes a lot of effort to pay attention to the breath until you get the hang of it. And then it's just, you're with it. But it's stopping, preventing the mind from doing that by being a little more deliberate, a little more precise, even though it's boring, and sustaining that effort on that boring practice will result in greater understanding, greater capacity, greater accomplishment, in this case, of awareness. And the conclusion is, it's not who you are, it's what you do that determines whether you become a genius. It also determines whether you become successful in practice. It's not that some of you have the innate qualities and some of you don't. We all have them. We all have these capacities of mind. We all have these seven factors of awakening within us as potential. If we develop them, if we make the effort to develop them, that's the cause. The result or the effect is sure to take place. We awaken. Slowly, step by step, the mind will awaken and be freed in the process. So let's sit a moment, let the words recede. mind, Ajahn Sumedho says, is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.